0: Thank you. Potential and Possibilities, Discussions with Fascinating People, Designing a Better Tomorrow for All of Us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today, helping to create a better tomorrow. Uh, Today, we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Andrea Meyer, who is the Unchu Seng Professor in Medicine, Healthy Aging, and Dementia Research. And co director of the new Center for Healthy Longevity at uh, the National University of Singapore. Uh, Professor Meyer also holds professorship appointments at uh, the Free University Medical Center in Amsterdam, Netherlands, and University of Melbourne in Australia, as well as serving as director of medicine and community care at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Uh, in addition to all of that, Professor Meyer is also the president of the Australia and New Zealand Society for Sarcopenia and Frailty Research, as well as founding president of the new Healthy Longevity Medicine Society. Uh, a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, Professor Meyer graduated in medicine uh, from the University University the University of University of Lubeck in Germany, uh, was registered uh, in the Netherlands as a specialist in internal medicine geriatric specialty and was appointed full professor of gerontology uh, at the University of Amsterdam, uh, where she was the head of geriatrics uh, at the Medical Center from 2012 to 2016. Uh, From 2016 to early 2021, Professor Meyer uh, served as uh, Divisional Director of Medicine and Community Care at Royal Melbourne Hospital, Australia, and as Professor uh, of Medicine and Aged Care at University of Melbourne. Uh, Her research focus uh, is quite broad, um, focuses on rattling mechanisms of aging and age-related diseases, And During the last 10 years, uh, she has conducted multiple uh, international observational cohort studies and intervention trials. She has published literally hundreds of peer-reviewed articles on these topics and is a frequent guest on radio and television programs, serving to disseminate aging research uh, and an invited member to many international academic and health policy committees, including the World Health Organization, and she also serves as an elected member of the Royal Holland Society of Sciences and Humanities. We have a lot of interesting things to get into. her. Uh, with her uh, today. Uh, Dr. Professor Andrea Meyer, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. That was a very long introduction.
0: You've done a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I could have gone on, but, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, a great um, place to start, actually, would be to to hear some of it uh, from you, sort of the uh, beginning of all this. Uh, if you could sort of take us back to the early days, um, you know, everything from you know where you grew up, what got you interested in, in medicine and gerontology and a little bit of this early uh, career, a passion for this space. I'd love to hear that part of the story.
1: Yeah. Oh, Um, I have a German passport, I live in the Netherlands and in Singapore at the moment and I think if you ask where is home and where did you grow up really, um, that's in Germany, Um, in a village with more cows than inhabitants, so (laughs) quite rural, that's a translation, Um, where it was quite difficult to follow passion in terms of um, art, et cetera, because of what's so rural. So at a certain point, my parents decided, okay, she has to go abroad, etc. So I did that from, from early ages, went um, to different schools in, in America and, and everywhere to, to learn English uh, as a German. It's very hard, always. <laughs> Germans are not good at languages. Um, So I grew up very rural and then went abroad and studied medicine first in Halle then in Lübeck and then went to the Netherlands and went to a couple of different countries to actually see how our countries um, serve medicine and and what they do and um, I always had the intention to learn much more about culture and the cultural differences. That's the reason why I really love to travel. But I think if you look really at my genetic makeup, um, my both of my parents were in the medical field, so I grew up. Uh, in a practice of my father and mother. Uh, My father at that moment in time was a GP and then became a dermatologist but I was surrounded always not only by patients but also by lots of diseases (laughs) and um, I I knew very early that that would be my passion next to art. Of course I had to decide um, do I study art or do I go into medicine? At a certain point my parents, especially my father said uh, where do you get your money from? we are not going to do that, so you have to do something seriously. And uh, so I studied medicine.
0: Excellent, excellent. And, and you know, Andre, as, as I mentioned in the, uh, your extensive bio sort of at the very end there, uh, you know, I mentioned one of the, uh, you know, responsibilities that you've recently taken on, aside from everything else that you're doing, uh, you know, is, is, is basically uh, as, the the president of this new healthy longevity medicine society. And if I may just read sort of um, it's an organization committed to centralizing, establishing, facilitating, and promoting a clinical research agenda uh, that encompasses all aspects of longevity medicine. And and I really found this um, very refreshing and interesting in the sense that, you know, know, the last couple of decades we've seen uh, the maturation of um, things going on in the longevity biospace, we obviously see a lot of work uh, happening at the bench in terms of our mice and our rats and our rabbits and dogs and so forth. We see the beginning uh, of some interesting interventions into clinical development for for novel drug products, but then sort of this third area that we don't normally talk as much about but is extremely important. just the world of medicine, that we do have a world here of 8 billion people, we have hundreds of millions of people alone here in the United States, age 60 and older, Um, and medicine is practiced on a daily basis, and uh, there are other things to do in taking care of these patients, as you well know, um, that where we don't have to wait 20 years for the next wonder drug to come along. Can you talk a little bit about sort of just the principle of how you look at Longevity medicine, in essence, what longevity medicine means to you, um, and a little bit about what the the mission of the society is all about in promoting sort of this third leg of uh, geroscience development.
1: Yeah, a a big question. So first of all, let's let's start. Why I at the moment at a certain time said, okay, we we need a society, we need a structure, we need something regulating something, because I was a hospital manager, especially in um, in in Australia, in in Melbourne, uh, but I was also a hospital manager or department manager in um, in the Netherlands. And at a certain time I said, "Okay, we we are providing this care and it's super care. And uh, every year we have another drug, but essentially we do not change anymore. It's even better here every time. But I still see patients when it's a little bit too late. And their neuroscience kicks in with the entire idea that the disease progression already starts after development even we re- arguing if it occurs during develop- development but a- at least we can very easily measure from the 20th 30th birthday onwards that we are declining in terms of function and that the risk of an related diseases is is occurring and it's accumulating and why should i bear with, as a physician as an internal medicine physician a geriatrician wait until it occurs Why should I wait as a manager that somebody knocks on my door um, 20 years later before we could already see um, disease progression and there was could prevent um, that decline and that occurrence? So that was, I would say, a little bit, if I'm very honest, that that um, reflection um, of okay I really have to do something else with my life uh, and I have to change medicine and somebody has, has to do it and luckily we have lots of like-minded uh, clinician scientists who who see and feel the same so there is a movement so that's the reason why we established the uh, Healthy Longevity Medicine Society uh, because one lag was in management, the other lag was really in research. Um, and I did lots of studies with centenarians, but also with 20 or 30 year olds, with middle age, with the propensity of longevity and middle age with lots of diseases already. So while understanding why we age and, and how our body is behaving during our aging process, I thought, okay, now I have to do it and I have to bring it into clinical practice. How do I do it? And nobody has, I think the recipe. On the other hand side, while having all the accumulation of knowledge and writing papers and having a H-index which is rising, nobody is really being cured. (laughs) So we have to um, to be able to to implement it into structures. Um, And of course, it's a rising business, like 100% of the population, if you call aging a disease, is sick. So... um, Others, of course, also see that, and that's why there are so many wellness clinics, so many anti-aging clinics, etc., which are great to have, but however, and that's a little bit my fear, it's not regulated, so I don't know what the quality is. And that was a little bit the second, next to my a little bit frustration, that need for regulation and defining what is good care, even if it's not medically regulated, but what can I a person going to the clinics what can they expect so what is the return of investment either of the time or the money they're spending to take um drugs supplements to get tested etc in clinics which are already there on the other hand side um what we can already buy on amazon or on other providers so who is actually uh, be able to advise individuals what kind of supplements to take and which supplements not to take in which not only what but also which uh, dosage frequency uh, etc to have possibly uh, health benefits so and again there the society kicks in to do that um, I would also like to see uh, that medicine is kicking in there. And that's the reason why it's a medical society. Because in medicine, what I learned, but that's only my opinion, because I grew up in medicine, we are quite well structured, we have physicians which are trained to do a certain job. And the job is being done most of the times by, um, by following guidelines. At least we have discussions and we give guidance to ourselves and we give guidance to the health insurer what to pay for and not to pay for. And that's very important. So the society has, um, has uh, three aims. The, the first aim is education. So what we are doing at the moment in the podcast, learn about uh, the Healthy Longevity uh, Medicine Society. Um, for laymen, but also for politicians, for uh, industry partners, and for physicians, and get it recognized as a speciality, uh, longevity medicine in, for example, internal medicine. I think secondly, I already touched on that guidelines are dear to my heart, because I want to know what's best, and not everybody can uh, can look at thousands of articles and PubMed and summarize them, so we need that. And we not only need that for healthcare professionals, but we also need that for the laymen and we have to translate the knowledge into readable uh, documents on websites, etc, that people know what they're doing and um, that they can do a risk assessment themselves if they are taking supplements or they're going for a drip or whatever is being being done. Um, And the third thing is really that we harmonize what we are doing and we standardize what we are doing, we accelerate what we are doing in research. So I really look forward um, to a trial network where we can, across countries, across continents, can uh, bring physicians together and researchers together to have phase 2b and 3 and 4 trials, Uh, much, much quicker than we have at the moment because we have so many boundaries by regulations and countries. We don't have the network yet. Maybe we don't have the trust yet um, because the number of trials is not as big as in other specialities as endocrinology, oncology, etc. So we just have to learn to to build a network and to to work together and to standardize. So that's really why I found it um, with my colleagues, the, the society. Um, and it's growing and growing. So every week we have um, much, much more members than the week before. Uh, so there it seems to be a, a movement. there's lots of um, of interest.
0: Excellent, excellent, really exciting. And, and, I, and I totally appreciate everything you just said there because I think it's so refreshing and uh, to see sort of this as part of the, um, uh, the evolution of the space. So, no, that's really exciting. Um, you know, it, it's it, as you were mentioning, uh, sort of synthesizing and distilling down the peer-reviewed literature, I, I have to say that of, of all the guests I've, I've had on my show to date, uh, you are by far the most prolific publisher I, I have ever seen. Um, and, and I thought, you know, the interesting thing is you don't publish on just one sort of sort of hallmark of aging, you're, you published quite broadly. And what I thought it'd be very interesting to do is maybe now look sort of at a, a top line level at a couple of your papers, just not just to show sort of the scope of what you're involved in, but also how some of what you've been publishing on sort of trickles down into these new uh, clinical models. Um, and I thought just to really, interesting place to start um very apropos of what's going on in in the world today uh is um your paper from 2018 october in frontiers of physiology uh, repurposing proteostasis modifying drugs to prevent or treat age-related dementia a systematic review uh and in lieu of uh, this amazing dearth of dementia interventions that we have, even in 2022, uh, you at the time were looking at uh, dozens of trials, looking at uh, a range of repurposed uh, substances, lithium, rapamycin, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, um, some, some supplement molecules, and so forth. Talk a little bit about, because you know repurposing is such a hot theme, uh, and especially in this domain, talk a little bit about... Um, the topic of repurposing, where it fits into sort of your your medical you know, practice, the way you think, and then obviously a little bit of your, because you know, dementia is a an important topic for all of us, but also for uh, in, in your research program. Talk a little bit about some of what you found in, in this particular study.
1: Yeah, so uh, the, the reason, if I'm very honest, to look at dementia, because most of the knowledge we had about repurposing of drugs was uh, related to one organ in our body, and that's the brain, because this is really what we target to to be. It's not only that we have to be able to walk and to talk, but we need a brain and we need a little bit of cognition, et cetera, while we are are aging. So the reason was really a pragmatic one, because I'm really interested in the aging process itself and in all our organs and all our cells, and and not just um, for dementia, because if we cannot walk, um How can we talk and 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 make sense out of it? So I think the integrity of our organ system is most most important while you are doing systematic reviews it 's very important that you have an outcome in the end as you as you said and and to learn most and then relate that also to other organ systems so that 's the reason why the primary outcome is is dementia. Um, why is repurposing drugs so important if we are looking at the aging process and how we could antagonize the aging process. There are three different domains uh, prominent. The first is lifestyle. Okay, we can um, we can walk more and eat less, etc. So maybe we'll touch on that a little bit. Um, but secondly, we can have supplements where we enrich what we are normally would eat or um, things which are not uh, registered with the FDA or the EMA. Mm-hmm. But the third is very interesting because I have as a physician, lots of medications which I prescribe normally to my patients. So mm-hmm. I know how to prescribe then with et cetera. And I, and I have a very good safety profile um uh, in myself and i know what i uh should expect if people are taking uh it so there was repurposing of drugs for new indication which is aging is could be quite favorite um, we know already why and how these medications work and uh, and their wits we know how how safe they are Look, let's let's try that so i think one of the most important um repurposing eight of drugs studies is still tame uh, from Neobazili, giving metformin to individuals who do not have uh, diabetes. So with that analogy, we could give so many other drugs where we know how they work, for example, Uh, having something positive in the proteostasis. Uh, We know that the proteostasis is going to decline. So the proteins um, are misfolded in the end with higher age and uh, drugs as lithium, which we would normally give uh, for psychiatric uh, patients and much lower dosages could actually help with the folding of proteins and stability of proteins in their ways. yeah prevent the decline during the agent process and there was also uh, prevent the decline of cognitive function so that's the entire idea but we had a couple of other reviews not about proteostasis but insulin sensitivity etc giving metformin insulin Um, so there are so many drugs so my group really uh, searched for drugs to actually trial them in in humans so we included uh, lots of animal studies, including studies with Drosophila or with um, C. elegans or worm or mice and rats, etc., even chicken, mm-hmm. and looked at, okay, what kind of proteostasis-modifying drugs do we already have, such as uh, lithium, which could influence the cognition uh, better? And what is the translation, which is very important, into human studies? So we, we um, analyzed that, and there's lots of positive signals especially in the animal field if we then look at how many studies are really being published um doing these trials in humans they are much more limited and they're much more positive so this already rings the bell in my uh, brain like how many why are all the the, uh, the the studies in in animals positive and so la la in in humans i must just correct the in humans it was um uh the positive and negative ones. So maybe we have to do with publication bias, etc. But what these kind of reviews bring is a better understanding of the mechanisms and a little bit of the effect size, in which which organs to, to target. So we did the same for insulin sic- uh, signaling pathways and for others. So there we learn how the hallmarks of aging, so the mechanisms of aging really interfere uh, with organ dysfunction and Mm -hmm. how repurposed drugs could help and one of the drugs of course um, high on the list which we are going to trial soon in Singapore are the rapalox or the rapamycin normally we would give them to kidney transplant patients but we know uh, how how well they are modifying not only the immune system, but cellular uh, function, which could then end in a prevention of age-related diseases. And the strategy, how we choose what kind of next randomized controlled trials we do in my group at the University of Singapore, is that we first look at all the literature in animals and in humans. We summarize that, we do meta-analysis. And if there's a gap, we are going to kick in and do that trial.
0: Excellent, excellent. Moving from uh, dimension now to your uh, thought leadership in the whole area of of frailty and sarcopenia, um, next year in August 2019, you published a paper, again in Frontiers, Age-Related DNA Methylation Changes, Potential Impact on Skeletal Muscle Aging in Humans. And this one's also fascinating because you touch on obviously um, the epigenetics of uh, of muscle cells but you also bring in uh, another very hot topic nowadays that the whole area of the biomarkers and the epigenetic clocks and then this also got me thinking because you know you've gone you know you you also work in the clinic with patients that have sarcopenia and thinking about okay you know I'm trying to remember my basic biology here but you know you there's that Uh, muscle cell and then it becomes the the tubes and all that and the muscle has to form in a certain way and you got to exercise it and so forth. I really thought this was a very nice platform again for sort of the continuum that you're focused on Talk a little bit about this and also um, just say a few words about the clocks, because I know, again, you know, reading through the um, Healthy Longevity Medicine Society, a major part of that is sort of the diet, you know, the the understanding, the diagnostics, the understanding uh, of how we are aging at uh, genetic epigenetic level and so forth. Talk a little bit about uh, this paper as well as you would.
1: Yeah, so muscle as the brain is very important, and I think it's a little bit under-recognized, uh, The human muscle we have more than 600, and uh, it, it should be the biggest organ in your in your body. <laughs> so um, that's very important. And what I also like with the muscle is that it's modifiable. Look, we, it's very hard to um, to increase the brain. <laughs> But if you're going to the gym and you do resistance exercise training, you can increase your your muscle mass and muscle strength and nervous function and reduce the risk of not only falls and fractures, but also diabetes, for example. So it's the most modifiable organ we have. We under appreciate i think because we have to do something to do it i just went to a walk so that's good with the dog so i did my uh, physical activity for today um so but most importantly of course is why is that human muscle so flexible and why do we lose so much every even day if we are immobilized Uh, for example icu patients Um, or immobilized uh, individuals lying in bed, they are losing 10-15% of muscle mass in a couple of days. So it's so rapid. Um, And what is determining the muscle mass and muscle strength and the increase of muscle mass and muscle strength of individuals? And I think that's so fascinating and their epigenetics, but the whole hallmarks of aging kick uh, in. And you just referred to, to one of the papers we wrote, because we, we know that the epigenetic makeup, which means um, on the DNA, there's on top um, methylated pieces uh, on the DNA, which is called then epigenetic. It's on the genes, epigenetic. And depending on where the methylation uh, dots are, uh, that's dependent on what kind of organ you're looking at. So, where you take the piece out of a human body. So, the methylation um, is. is individual it's different between the organs and it seems that one third of what is methylated what the fingerprint is of the methylation is the same in the different organs within one individual so that's already good okay so one third is the same and then you have one third we have really no idea and one third is very different and that's organ specific so then of course the question is it's an organ like muscle is very reachable, so we can take punch biopsies and and take some um, some material and actually see what their where their methylation state is, and if the methylation is different in individuals who are physically active or not. It depends on muscle strength or mass, uh, depends on what you eat, etc. So because it's so easy to obtain, or relatively easy to obtain, it's still painful a little bit to take a muscle biopsy. Um, it's so nice to learn of what is so specific about muscle. And then also to compare that to other organ systems. And then the clocks kick in. I would say there is a hype of um, building clocks in the last five to 10 years. Uh, A clock only means that um, the methylation state, an epigenetic clock you're with, and the methylation state, how different that is compared to your peers of the same chronological age. So that's the first generation clocks. So how do you uh, behave in terms of methylation in a certain organ from a different cell uh, compared to your peers? Are you um, behaving methylation wise a little bit younger or older? So do you have characteristics which are mimicking the ones Uh, of individuals who are much younger chronologically Mm -hmm. or or older and there was we can give a biological age and the biological age can be very different from the chronological age and the uh, younger biological age is associated with a lower incidence of disease so the risk of a disease is is lower that's the reason why you are biologically um uh, younger. So uh, then the question, of course, uh, is why is it such a hype? And and uh, I think I contribute to that <laughs> because in <laughs> clinics, I would like um, to have a diagnostic tool to say, okay, you are 62. However, biologically in your muscle or in your PBMCs in the blood, you are 48 or 52 and whatever. Um, that might help to please that individual because that individual is uh, biologically younger. Um, in clinic, it helps much more if you say, okay, you are three years older compared to your peers. So, and we can reverse that while, for example, prescribing certain exercises, um, lifestyle intervention, supplements, repurpose drugs, as we just uh, talked about. So it is using the same um, information but then linking it to a chronological age and to the risk of diseases. And that's what we call clocks. And we can build these clocks while using lots of information. For example, the methylation clocks we have, but we can also build a blood clock. Um, So we take bloods uh, regularly within internal medicine. Every GP takes blood, a glucose, a creatinine. So looking at the kidney function, liver function, And all these numbers we now created to make clocks. So we can say overall, your body is functioning as a, and then an an age, a biological Mm -hmm. age. So we are making now by using the the measures differently, we are making clocks, which we can then translate into clinical practice. Excellent,
0: really exciting. just a couple more here. I, I just once again to to round out sort of the amazing scope of what you've been involved in but I think this one is is also I mean this is about a decade old now but I think this really um feeds into a lot even in 2022 now and this is your uh 2011 paper in the journal of general virology uh entitled infection with uh cytomegalovirus but not herpes simplex virus uh inducing accumulation of late differentiates in S&T cells in humans and again you know I I thought this was Fascinating because you know you're focusing here on CMV and senescence, um, and senescence, immunosenescence, obviously a major um, hallmark of aging. Last year I did an episode with um with Dr. Uh, at at Manchester. She was focusing on herpes simplex and it messing with proteostasis and and potential links to (laughs) to dementia. I'd love you know to say a few words about this, but also you know the um, the microbiome slash virome is something that's sort of I don't say missing. I mean, obviously it's out there, but we we don't find it on the hallmarks of aging. We don't find it sort of in the Sens seven basket, but it's extremely important. <laughs> it trickles down to a lot of this stuff. Just I'd love to hear sort of your top line views on what we could be doing about uh, the beneficial or the you know the the not so beneficial microbiome as part of this whole picture because clearly it's impacting a lot of these hallmarks along the way
1: yeah so first we have to recognize that they're influencing us and that was the 2011 uh uh paper where we really showed that if you're have uh if you're a cmv positive uh, and it belongs to the hapus viruses, the CMV, like HSV, et cetera. Look, you chronically have it, so you don't know. So it's not like a blister at the HSV right. um, that that you have it. So you don't know if you are CMV positive, only if you are a blood donor. They will let you know. So that a, a virus being chronically present has such a detrimental or has an effect so much on the immune system. Looking at the aging trajectory of individuals who are CMV positive or negative, that the ones who are uh, positive have so much more differentiated cells and that most of these cells at older age are against CMV. That's meshing. Look, it seems that our immune system is only really busy <laughs> to keep um, up to date and engaged with CMV. Right. Um, and there is no cure for that. Yeah. However, we also did lots of immunological studies uh, related to epidemiology to actually see if CMV uh, really associated then with a higher incidence of cardiovascular diseases, age-related diseases, or even mortality. Because um, our thought process was, if CMV is so much associated with a, a, a very aged immune system, then it would also be much more likely to have, through inflammation, etc., cetera, to have much more age-related diseases and mortality. If we are getting all the data together of tens thousands of thousands of individuals, what we found is that yes, it, it, it is associated with cardiovascular disease, especially diseases, age-related ones, with more inflammation. However, there is only a very tiny and, and binary neglectable um, increased risk of mortality. So it seems that we learned how to deal with CMV, being in our body, at least I know that I'm seemingly positive, so in my body, and I'm dealing with it in a sort of homeostasis, mm. um, and it is not giving me a rise in the chance of mortality, for example, so there is a is a balance, and I think what we should try, and that, that's what the field is doing, uh, in analogy, we have so many Different species in our body, either within in our, uh, hopefully not blood because that will give a sepsis, but in our guts, um, we are living with, and there is a sort of homeostasis. And now targeting different species and how they could improve our health, based on what we eat or how much we we. Um, uh, we, we drink what we drink, we even do not know how much we can regulate the microbiome, that the microbiome is living with us in an in even better homeostasis and balance, as we showed very early days, as you said, like 15 years ago, we, we did the experiments with uh, CMV. So it's it's really interesting to see, OK, what is harmful? What is um for benefits of both so the microbes together with um, our body and where could we even more benefit from and i would say we are touching really the surface of it um 10 years ago in clinical practice i did even feces transplants when people were uh, resistant mm-hmm. to antibiotics uh, for example so really extreme things but which means that we already now know since a couple of decades how important it is. And now we have to find the balance, how we can improve healthy longevity while improving our communication with lots of um, very nice species living with us
0: and improving the communication of, of selling fecal transplants but that's a that's a different topic for for another day but no no, that, no I I really appreciate that perspective on it Andrea that, that, that was great um wh- one last paper that I promise we'll, we'll we'll loop back to uh National University of Singapore but I, I just want to ask um because I'm very fond of the the whole topic of uh robustness and resilience and you know the uh you, you published this paper um resilience to cognitive impairment in the oldest of the old designed the emif 8090 plus study um looking at you know what in, in these in these populations of uh non-agenarians makes them so resilient what are the protective factors uh to uh can you talk a little bit just about resilience because i think this is uh, another area that i think gets overlooked a little bit uh in the sense of you know how do we uh, obviously Um, We have the drugs and the interventions and stuff, but resilience is a little different. You know, it's sort of coming from the other side of, you know, uh, how sort of the core of our our genetics, uh, the the epigenetics and so forth, resist (laughs) things happening. So talk a little bit of resilience, if you would, and what the EMIFAD90 plus uh, study was all about.
1: Yeah. So first of all, most of the times we describe individuals, then we say, "Oh, this individual is not frail; it's looking good, is frail, etc." But most of the times we are characterizing individuals, and that's also when we are seeing somebody on the street just walking. So okay, looks good or looks bad. Maybe needs a new hip replacement or or whatever. So we are we are we are we are judging based on a steady state normal conditions and however that doesn't tell the entire story because sometimes we are exposed to stressors which can be a physical stress and it can be a mental stress it can be environmental stress etc and then we are testing resilience and resilience is nothing more if you have somebody in the steady state or a cell at a body so it can be um, a groups of individuals you bring a stressor you actually see how that um, body for example is reacting to the stress and that then defined as is somebody resilient yes or no so in my early ages actually we uh cultured fibroblasts and we were just looking how they were doing in the, in the petri dish, and we couldn't find anything any association with a clinical phenotype it was just a fibroblast and they're not telling us anything. While um, really stressing that system, these kind of fibroblasts with glucose or radiation, we expose them to stress. And there we are tested the resilience. And while testing the resilience and dividing really individuals who were much, and cells much more resilient to, to compare to others, we were able to see the association with clinical phenotypes. So, uh, fibroblasts even crawling in a, a petri dish, not being associated with anything while being stressed, these uh, resilient fibroblasts were associated, or co- were coming from individuals who had a much better lifespan and health span, So, less disease, etc. Where looking at just crawling fibroblasts and then being stressed which were much less resilient. These were coming from individuals already with disease etc. So sometimes you have to stress the system to identify characteristics and to learn. So that's what we also did in our 90 plus study with the primary outcome, okay, what makes you resilient in your brain that you keep your cognitive uh, capacity active? So you still can think and walk and talk, you're socially integrated, et cetera. So what are the determinants of that phenotype? Which is of course very, uh, yeah, Uh, Everybody wants that um, to be um, not only physically active, but also cognitively uh, um, uh, active at a certain age. So we found of course, that there's a huge link of the body to the brain, for example, uh, with the muscles, but also with the heart function. So we now know that the brain is functioning in a network of other organs. And that's also the reason why I think that every brain researcher should not just look at the brain, but the brain is in communication with the heart, with the lungs, with the muscles, even with bones, etc. And that is all interfering with each other. And just making the brain healthy will not work because you need the rest of um, of the, the the body. So. We uh, also looked at the immune system. So really, uh, we were able to create a network to see what kind of environment does the brain need to age healthily. Which means that you also have to keep the other organ systems uh, uh, healthy, Uh, but we also looked inside of the brain because the brain is not just the brain. The brain is uh, composed out of white uh, matter and grey matter and different structures which are interconnected and we said okay what is possibly the weakest link which makes um, or increases the resilience. Uh, of brains so and you need of course the hippocampus because the hippocampus is a little bit your storage of the brain where you uh, put down all the memories Mm -hmm. (laughs) and if you need them you have to get them there Uh, but also the motor cortex um, to to make you move Um, or the frontal cortex where um, expressions etc are if I'm now sad or not if I'm aggressive or not so and how these different structures in the brain are working together and what kind of damage accumulation individuals have were quite resilient uh, or or not and we of course not only looked at the structures but also looked at the function while uh, doing very sophisticated brain scans where we were able to trace uh, certain molecules in the brain and and see what's activated, what's not activated. Because if you have it, it doesn't mean that you use it.
0: Right. So
1: that's even most, uh, most important. And that's what we did with a huge uh, European um, uh, project Uh, The AMIF project where a couple of centers also recruited 90 plus year olds and uh, every of the center had a different task, which I really like in consortia, because then you can uh, not do the same, uh, but you add another piece of the puzzle to then have this nice picture what a 90 year old uh, really is and how they are functioning and uh, what a resilient brain really means.
0: Outstanding, outstanding. I I, actually, I really appreciate you taking time to go through, through those four papers. And and I said, I, I really wanted to sort of lay the groundwork to show sort of the scope of, of what you're all about. We, we've talked about uh, epigenetics and resilience and the microbiome uh, and repurposing and, and all sorts of exciting topics. Obviously this lays the groundwork for why you are now uh, with Brian Kennedy leading this amazing healthy longevity uh, program, uh, National University of Singapore, uh, also the uh, the translational research program. Take us through a, a little bit, because obviously in addition to research and practicing medicine and running the Medicine Society, uh, you have had to uh, raise money and set up this whole <laughs> amazing hacking aging system Talk a little bit about this journey. Uh, sort of talk about the, obviously you're you're in uh, the Netherlands right now, but you get back and forth to Singapore. Talk a little bit about Singapore uh, and and its interest in in being a uh, sort of a, a world leading epicenter for this work. Uh, maybe a little bit about the the Lean Foundation where you raised your money from. Uh, take a little a little bit about the history of what went into uh, setting up this new really cutting edge uh, initiative in Singapore.
1: Okay, I think. Um... Of course, there are lots of cities and universities to be to do aging research, but I have never seen such an engagement and commitment, I would say, from the university to make it happen. So the first things to um, the deanery, et cetera, to really make it happen to the Faculty of Medicine. Um, it's not very often that you speak to either hospital managements or the managements of universities that they really understand what you're talking about. And they are even faster in reading neuroscience articles than you are. So and that's so fascinating. And um, so the National University of Singapore really makes it happen. Um, Secondly, there is an ecosystem in Singapore of lots of startups, there's lots of movement, lots of innovation, lots of Interfering activities, which also help to engage with the university, but also to engage with public and to with industry partners. Yeah. And next to that, there are luckily foundation sponsors like the Yen Foundation, which really think, okay, this is the way to go, and uh, we want to fund it and we want to help you in raising awareness. So it's not just the money, but most importantly, also that we have programs to to for outreach um, that all Singaporeans should uh, should should know what geroscience is and and what our aim uh, is so that's a very special ecosystem, the most important that's a little bit the cherry on the cake. Uh, in Singapore is that politicians are very interested, because um, as in all countries, we are aging societies and the fertility rate is also quite low in Singapore. So Hmm. we really work together with the politicians, with the MPs to make it happen to see, okay, at which stage is the research, what is um, translatable into clinical practice already. And uh, how can we evaluate if it works or not. And what is so important is that the vision is not a short term vision, but it's a longer term vision, because aging is a trajectory so we will not have um, great successes maybe in trials but not implementing it into clinical practice in the next one two or five years because the outcome will be visible in 10 or 20 years so while having these rigorous conversations of is singapore ready to implement certain things that's what we are doing with uh, not only the, the councils the medical councils in singapore but especially also um, with respected uh, politicians in Singapore to make it work. And I haven't found that ecosystem where um, all the partners are really working together. So w- what's the aim of um, the Center for Healthy Longevity? It's um, it's very easy, <laughs> only two big aims. <laughs> the first aim is um, to find uh, valid, accurate diagnostics mm-hmm. for the aging process, which means which accurate, uh, which clock is most accurate which can be um, implemented into clinical practice. And we also, while doing so, are really looking at the pathways of why we age in worms and C. elegans, so Brian Kennedy is doing that. And once we have a hit, we bring that quite easily. That's my specialty to to humans and we can test it. And we also test if, for example, such a clock works in 20 year olds or 40 year olds or 60 year olds. But maybe that clock might be different, the different age groups, because the the clock might tick differently in older individuals, but it might also tick differently um, in different ethnicities. Um, we don't know how different ethnicity, races, etc. cetera, uh, age. And also clocks might be different. So that's the mm-hmm. reason why we really invest also in cohort studies, uh, also longitudinal cohort studies, to include the diversity of the population all living in Singapore at, in the same 40 by 20 kilometers or in, in Asia, which is, I think, very important to really understand the biology behind aging and then transfer that and make clocks out of it. The second one is, um, look, I would find it quite unethical to just measure something uh, without interfering and without intervention. So Mm -hmm. the major pillar where the most investment at the moment is going to is to interfere with the biological aging process of not only C. elegans and all the rats and the mice, but especially also with humans. And what we achieved at the Center for Health Longevity, we have a preclinical team and we have a clinical team and they communicate, that's most important. So if we find something in mice, we will have of course beforehand also meetings to say, okay, what do you see? Can we translate it? Can we we really based on these results make the first trial already in humans? And once we have the human uh, studies, can we take the biopsies, can we link back to the mechanisms and can we bring it back into the animal models? So making it as a circle to make it better. Um, And we have three different domains. First is the lifestyle domain. So thinking not only you have to move more and eat less, but making it very specific, what kind of diet, most healthiest diet, I think it's very, very powerful. Um, And we forget most of the times that there are lifestyle changes, which can have a huge effect. Secondly, these are supplements like alpha-ketoglutarate or spermidin or physitin or, look, um, there are so many. And thirdly, as we already touched on, that's the drugs and especially repurposed drugs. But while doing and having that deep link with the preclinical team, of course, also uh, the new drug candidates, which we will bring in phase one and two studies, whereas the repurposed drugs will much more go into phase two, two B and three and four. Next to that, to just additionally, we have two uh, big projects and that's the health district in Queenstown. There is within Singapore, there are districts where people live, like hundreds, thousands of people. And we are now doing research in one of the districts where we actually know um, who, who who's living there but how people are living what the environment looks like how much steps they take uh, how much sun there is how much noise there is um where the the normal groceries are being being bought Mm. so we have lots of detail and we have um with the gps we we have now a network where we can actually track the health of these individuals Um, And this is the platform where we do phase four studies, because we're already tracking these individuals in cohorts. And then we can do supplement studies or lifestyle interventions or at at a certain time, also include them into repurposed uh, drug trials on a much bigger scale uh, because we have already the information. The second thing of that more outreach of our research is that, we will open the first uh, publicly funded healthy longevity medicine clinic. In Mm -hmm. one of the hospitals in that district, we are going to open the first clinic, like a polyclinic um, where we see individuals and expose them to geroscience, diagnose their biological age before they are sick and implementing the care already in, in the hospital system.
0: Outstanding, really outstanding one thing as, as you're as you were going through that process you reminded me of one other thing i just wanted to ask you about because um i um i spent most of my uh career in the in the pharmaceutical industry and one of the things that was sort of uh anathema let's say uh, back in the the early day was the 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 topic of combinations. um, And that, you know, it's great to study things when you combine them, but it it takes forever. We like to study drug A, and then drug B, and then drug C, and ultimately put drug A, B, and C together. And we have, as a result of that, amazing HIV treatments nowadays, chemotherapy cocktails, and so forth. Um, There seems to be sort of an underswelling in the Uh, longevity community that it'd be really nice. Uh, It's great to study metformin and rapamycin and alpha-ketoglutarate. It'd be nice to study them together at some point. That doesn't take 30 years (laughs) to do it. What is your position uh, at the new center on how one goes about combination interventions? Because I think there's sort of an understanding that's probably useful (laughs) at some point in this hold on I know people will say well how do you study pharmacokinetics of combinations or pharmacodynamics and all that bit but I'm interested in outcomes so what's your perspective yeah. on this
1: so and in, in not not much in papers because the outcome so yeah. you just have to write it down right. um so w- what the strategy is we will uh we have um the randomized control trials in parallel so we have one control Uh, 40 to 60 for example individuals healthy um, who are exposed to control uh, um, pills Uh, then we have the the actual compound the supplement for example but we have different supplements in parallel we are testing them not only in different dosages but also different different compounds which means that we can then also, um, because we are doing it at the same time, we we can look at the effect sizes of the different compounds. Now, that's the first step, yep. because if you're looking at literature, it's very hard to do meta analysis, even in NMN trials, because everything is different. So yep. uh, the first step is, what is the effect size, comparing the effect sizes of different drugs, then looking at the mechanisms or supplements, then looking at the mechanisms which could actually be additive or which might not be additive and adding them into that scheme of parallel trials. Because then you also know uh, what's going to work and what's not going to work and which ones have additive value and how much additive value there there is. And that's absolutely what we are doing and then having a, a triple regime, uh, etc. I think what's most exciting is um, to bring that multi-pill or multi-supplement ingredient based on the personal characteristics of the biologic phenotype of that person. So make it personalized. I think that's even the next step. So we will do lots of post hoc analysis to say who was a responder for APG? Who was a responder for Physitin, Spermidine of NMN or NNR? Um, who responded based on what biological phenotype of what clock? Of what problem in the cell and then make it even more specific and then you are reaching um the the, the theme of personalized uh, medicine so it has to be adapted towards what's uh, maybe not wrong but dysfunctional yep. uh in that cell and cellular systems in certain organs of that individual and try to fix that as we do also in oncology for example because oncology in the last 20 years really changed now. Everybody has a different scheme of chemotherapy, etc., yeah. based on the molecular basis of that cancer that person has, and that's my aim to bring the healthy longevity medicine into that personalized trade or at least clustered trade of therapeutics.
0: Outstanding! Really, really refreshing to hear to hear this, Andre. I mean, it, it's really remarkable what what you're putting together there. Um, you no, know, it's
1: I it's just copy pasting out of things which others already did and other specialities it's just learning and observing and
0: uh, repurposing it's it's i mean there it is i mean that's it's it's as i said it's 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 very elegant and refreshing to see this happening i just i take my hat off if i had one on um so i mean I, I've seen uh, you recently at you know a lot of the longevity conferences. Obviously, you've been in the uh, the news a lot based on the news center. I, I saw some videos of you with the ministers and everything on the stage. Uh, what anything else that I missed that's happening for um, the rest of twenty twenty two? Things that are going to be coming up in early twenty twenty three other conferences you're gonna be at, places that we can meet you, talk to you, uh, see you present, anything else that I haven't touched on, please uh, take the floor.
1: Look! Look! I I would say just be in contact with me or follow me on uh, LinkedIn and uh, in Twitter. I'm better in LinkedIn. I don't understand Twitter really. <laughs> but, uh, um, I'm bad in that if somebody is listening and and teach me how to do Twitter, uh, please. I'm not a good <laughs> idea. Like, <laughs>
0: um,
1: no, but 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 follow the the normal news uh, uh, channels. Re- read articles, and I think um, most importantly is that l- let's take this field seriously and let's bring evidence into the field. Um, and let's do that together. So if you are looking for collaborations or whatever, please reach out and uh, are happy to help to, to build
0: the network. Excellent, really excellent. Um, for, for everybody uh, that is going to be listening uh, to this particular show uh, across the different podcast networks, uh, or watching on our YouTube channel, again, you've been listening to Dr. Andrea Meyer, uh, Professor of Medicine, Healthy Aging and Dementia Research, co-director of the Center of Healthy Longevity, National University of Singapore, also founding president, Healthy Longevity Medicine Society. Uh, We will put links uh to to andrea in the bio of the show um andrea i want to thank you for taking the uh the time out of your schedule to walk us through this amazing story obviously thank you for everything that you're doing there and continue to do in singapore in, in the netherlands um and as we like to say on our show uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people via what you're doing a really very inspiring story
1: thank you so much